Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. George Kelly in the back looked at my text and my sermon title. He said, so we're preaching a rerun tonight, huh? No, not quite. I have not yet begun to exhaust what the Bible says about money, and I will not be able to do that tonight either, but we will continue to make progress. Specifically, last week we studied what does a wise man do with his money as it relates to the Lord. But I want to ask, what else does a wise man or a wise woman need to do with their money? How ought we to think about our finances? We saw last week that our giving to the Lord should be generous, it should be charitable, it should be cheerful, it should be wisely handled, it should be proportionate to our income. And tonight I want to continue to examine the biblical topic of finances. The Bible contains much about the topic of wealth. We won't cover it all tonight, but I want to begin to answer a question. How are we to relate to our finances, to our wealth, to our possessions? How do we relate to them? <clears throat> the church has wrestled with its relationship to wealth for a long time. From the very beginning, the early church, the medieval church, especially wrestled with the question, is wealth an evil to avoid? Does true holiness consist in giving away everything we own and taking on a vow of poverty? Is that how we are holy? Well, last week I mentioned that we have liberty in Christ to spend our money in whatever lawful ways we're led to do, but does that mean that the Bible says nothing else? Give your first fruits to the Lord and then you're completely free to do whatever you want? Or are there other guiding principles? Well, I think the Bible has much to say and we'll lay out a few of those guiding principles tonight and hopefully they will be a guide for us as we try and discern how we individually will handle our money. So let's begin looking at Proverbs chapter 3 again. I'm going to start reading in verse 5 and go through verse 10. And I'm starting at verse 5 because I want to see the connection between trusting the Lord with all of our heart in verse 5 and how we handle our money in 9 and 10. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Let us pray. Father, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see Christ revealed in your word. Keep us from distraction this night, Lord. Help us to keep our gaze fixed upon him and not on any created thing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's jump right in. A, uh, a first biblical principle to guide us as we're thinking about money is that God owns everything. God owns everything. I talked about this last week as a foundational principle for our giving back to the Lord, but it's also 
a foundational principle for us to talk about money or any system of economics. As the creator of all things, God is also the proprietor, the owner, the master of all things. Because he holds all things in existence by the very word of his power, he retains full rights over them, over their possession, over their distribution. Several places in scripture speak to this reality. Most notably, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing and there is nothing that exists that is not spoken into existence by him. Similarly, Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. The whole world is his and everything in it, not merely the planet, but all the stuff. Everything in the universe is his. Nothing is outside of his reign, which is the bedrock of any theology of money, wealth, possessions. God owns everything. Second biblical principle, wealth, possessions, money. Wealth is a gift. Wealth is a gift. If God owns everything, then for you to own anything rather than nothing is really something. The fact that we have anything at all is a clear testament to his generosity. Since God is the rightful owner of everything we have, this means that the money we actually earn belongs to God. He's loaning it to us for a short time so that we can be a blessing to others. Practically speaking, God calls on us to manage the money that we accumulate on his behalf. That's the essence of biblical stewardship. God says in Job 41.11, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine, God says. Everything that we possess is a gift from his plentiful storehouses, which in turn demonstrates a crucial corollary to this truth. If wealth is a gift, then that means that wealth is not a vice to be avoided, but a gift to be stewarded. If our possessions, if our money, if our wealth, however big, however small, is a gift from the Lord, then wealth is not a vice to be avoided, but a gift to be stewarded. Throughout history, there have been different groups from within the church and without the church, groups with different motivations that try and take a prophetic stand against greed. But what they end up doing is sounding more like a war cry against wealth as, as if it is an evil in and of itself. You see these confused cries against wealth within media and politics today. People clamoring for money and calling down people with money at the same time. You see the same cries within the church. But the Bible does not say that wealth is evil. Abraham was wealthy. Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, David, Solomon, very wealthy. The problem is not wealth in this world. The problem is instead the love of money, which leads to point number three. Wealth can be a great temptation. Wealth can be a great temptation. Though money is first and foremost a gift from God, the Bible also teaches us, it warns us, that it can be a serious temptation. And why is that? It's because it promises to, de to deliver everything that we might desire. Do you want comfort? 
money can get it. You want security. You want fun. You want fulfillment. You want power. You want sex. Money seems like the universal key that unlocks all the doors of happiness. But it's a lie. The Bible constantly unmasks the false promises of money. One pastor wrote, Money promises security, but it cannot protect you against God's judgment. Money promises lasting happiness, but it can disappear overnight. And you cannot take it with you when you die. Money promises freedom and ease, but with it comes anxiety and worry. Because the more we have, the more we have to lose. Of course, ultimately, money isn't itself the problem. You see, we are. We're the problem. The problem comes with our heart's sinful cravings for money at the expense of morality, ethics, righteousness. And for this reason, the Bible is filled to the brim with sharp warnings against covetousness. That is, craving that which belongs to somebody else. And warnings against greed. These warnings... Or in the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You see, if left unchecked, coveting, the desire to have something that someone else has, will give birth to dishonesty, or theft, or any host of other sins. Greed is simply insatiable, selfish. It's a desire for something more, most often money and possessions. Scripture not only condemns greed, it also proclaims its futility. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. The rich industrialist John Rockefeller once famously responded when asked how much money is enough. He said, just a little bit more. If you love money, you can never have enough. There's always more to get. There's always another zero to add to the paycheck. There's always another investment opportunity that's too good to pass up. There's always some latest and greatest version of everything that you already own. But the Apostle Paul issues a sobering warning against allowing the desire for wealth to overtake our contentment in this life. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 says... But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, the desire to be rich can be quite the trap. The idea of being wealthy seems so enticing. Money seems to offer such freedom, such fulfillment, such comfort and security. But sometimes all wealth leads to is misery and ruin. Why? Because as with so many things in life, as one's love for, desire for, and pursuit of money increase... So does one's willingness to do whatever it takes to get it. That's why Paul can say that the love of money is the root of many evils. All kinds of evils. 
Again, it's not money that's the problem, as we've already seen. Money is a gift from God. It's the love of money that's the issue here. The eager over-pursuit of money can lead anyone down a destructive path. And if our hearts become invested in earthly rewards rather than heavenly rewards, then we have strayed from the path of righteousness. So how do we know if we have succumbed to some of these temptations? Let me give you some indicators that we have succumbed to the temptations of the love of money. We've begun to covet in our hearts. These are adapted from something Alistair Begg once said. Number one, when thoughts of money consume my day. When thoughts of money consume my day. When my mind kicks into neutral and I've got a stray moment to just look off, not thinking about something, you go to money, your finances, your bills, your investments, whatever it is. Number two, when the financial success of others makes me jealous, I've begun to covet and fallen into the temptation of the love of money when the financial success of others makes me jealous. Number three, when I'm tempted to determine success in terms of what I have rather than what I am in Christ. When I'm tempted to determine success in terms of what I have rather than what I am in Christ. You see, my identity is being grounded in my possessions rather than in who possesses me. Number four, I've succumbed to the temptations of the love of money when my family is neglected in my pursuit of money. When my family is neglected in my pursuit of money. If you're habitually missing family time, missing the dinner table, missing the ball games, all for the pursuit of money or stuff, then be wary, the love of money is all around you. Number five, when I close my eyes to the genuine needs of others. When I close my eyes to the genuine needs of others. I don't want to spend any of this money I've accumulated. I just want to keep it all. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, counting your money while needy people are all around you. Number six. When I live in paralyzing fear of losing my money. The love of money is nearby. When I live in paralyzing fear of losing my money. Notice how none of these are tied to income. How much you make. You could make $5 an hour or $1,000 an hour. And any of these temptations can be real. Number seven. I love money when I'm prepared to borrow myself into bondage. When I sink myself up to my eyeballs in debt. The love of money, the love of possessions is nearby. And number eight, it is a safe indication that I love money when God receives my leftovers rather than my first fruits. When God receives my leftovers rather than my first fruits and I want to point out to you that these temptations are not new these temptations are not the result of modernity or technology or American capitalism the temptations of wealth 
and greed are actually quite ancient. Adam felt the temptation in the garden when Satan promised him all sorts of security and power if he would just disobey God's clear command. And Adam was drawn by the offer. He coveted in his heart what was not his to take, and his desire led him to disobey God and to plunge the world into a greedy, covetous mess. Maybe you felt this temptation. You felt the pull of something offered to you, something that you wanted, but you shouldn't have. Maybe you've succumbed to this temptation. You believe the lie of Satan that something other than God would bring you fulfillment. Something other than God would bring you lasting happiness. Some purchase, some house, some car, some phone, some dress, whatever material blessing or sign of wealth, that's what you needed. Then I would be happy if I just got that. So you coveted. You begin to set that item up on the pedestal. And maybe it even led you into further sins. Maybe you stole something to get what you wanted. You didn't report something that you should have to get what you wanted. Maybe you lied to get what you wanted. Maybe you neglected other duties that you should have been doing to do something else over here. But do you know who else was tempted with wealth? Jesus was tempted by Satan himself in the desert. The Bible tells us that Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. He was hungry, physically weak, and Satan didn't merely offer him a piece of forbidden fruit. The text says, Satan took Jesus to the top of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory. He said, all these I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan offered him everything that this world had to offer. Money, success, wealth, security, fame, glory. He offered it all. Could you imagine the pressure that Jesus felt? Starving, thirsty, lonely. He offered him companionship of the world, right? Friendship with the world. But Jesus didn't bend. And that's good news for us. Jesus did not bow down to Satan. He remained faithful, even in the midst of terrible temptation. He didn't covet in his heart. He didn't let his desires and his passions lead him into other sins. He didn't cave like Adam and Eve, or like me and you. He wasn't driven by the love of this world or material wealth, but he was filled with faithful trust and contentment with the lot that his father had given to him. But even more, Jesus didn't stop there in the desert. He kept going on his mission. He went all the way to the cross of Calvary where he died in the place of sinners like me and you. He took our place on the cross, bearing the full guilt of the sins of his people. And that's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus was so generous of heart that he willingly died in the place of stingy, covetous people. And he did so so that those covetous people might be saved from eternal death and placed on the path of eternal life and renewed by the Holy Spirit to become increasingly generous people, just like he was. You see, in Christ, we're no longer bound by our old nature to be greedy and covetous. In Christ, we've been given the promise of new life and the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us grow in generosity and kindness. We don't have to submit again to a yoke of idolatry that says stuff in this world will make me whole. Christ has saved us and he has made us whole. 
Wealth can be a big temptation, but take heart, Christ has withstood that temptation. And he died in the place of his people's failure. And he earned our freedom from materialistic slavery in this life. And if you have not yet come to Christ, then hear the warning that comes along with wealth. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and that it will drive you down the path of foolishness, which will lead to death. Be warned that Jesus taught that you cannot serve both God and money. It is impossible. And if you choose to serve the false God of money, then you will end up separated from the true God in a place called hell, where you will serve everlasting punishment. Do not bow down to the idol of money. Come to Christ this day and see him as the generous Savior that redeems greedy people from their sin. He waits ready to receive you if you would but come to him and believe. Wealth can be a great temptation. Fourth biblical principle regarding money. The Bible says that wealth is a reward to the diligent. Wealth is a reward to the diligent. I plan to address what Proverbs says about diligence and laziness in another sermon, but it's worth mentioning here as we talk about money that ordinarily a diligent hand will reap many rewards, one of which is usually wealth. Proverbs 10.4 says that a slack hand, a weak hand, a lazy hand causes poverty, but a hand of a diligent man makes rich. Ordinarily, a hard worker will reap the reward of wealth, while a lazy worker will reap the reward of poverty. I say ordinarily because we have to remember the rest of Scripture. We're reading a proverb, which is a description of the way that the world ordinarily works. This is not a promise explaining direct causation. We all probably know hardworking people that don't have much money, or lazy people that have great wealth. But neither of those examples undermine the normal pattern that wealth is a reward for a faithful worker. That means that one of the legitimate motivations that we can have for diligence in our work is to be rewarded with a paycheck. It's not an evil thing to make money. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God to earn our paycheck. That's the natural order of things, the way that God has worked the world. Proverbs 10, 22 says that the blessing of the Lord makes rich, which the context, in, context indicates means material blessing. You see, wealth is not the ultimate goal of wisdom, but it is often the reward for wisdom. Wealth is not the ultimate goal of wisdom, but it's often the reward for wisdom. We work hard, we earn our bread, and those that work hardest, that work wisely, often have the best bread. Wealth is a reward for the diligent. Next, fifth principle the Bible teaches about money. Wealth has wings. Wealth has wings. Not only does it take diligence to earn wealth, but it takes diligence to keep it. That's because, as Proverbs says, wealth is fleeting. Proverbs 23, 4, and 5 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings. 
Like an eagle, it flies towards the heavens. One paraphrase puts it this way, I think helpfully. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Restrain yourself. Riches disappear in the blink of an eye. Wealth sprouts wings and flies off into the wild blue yonder. I like that. Riches fly off into the wild blue yonder. If we don't pay attention, our wealth will sprout wings and fly away. Maybe you've noticed this in your life. You think you're doing fine. You take your attention off things. All of a sudden, a check bounces. A big bill shows up and it rocks you. Takes everything and turns it into a tailspin. You didn't keep your eye on the ball and suddenly you're down on the count and you're playing catch up. We have to pay attention. Proverbs 27, 23. Know well the condition of your flocks. Give attention to your herds for riches do not last forever. If, like we said earlier, we are to be stewards of what we've been given, then in order for us to be faithful stewards, we have to give attention to that which we have been entrusted It is poor stewardship for us to end up broke and needy because of our own inattentiveness, because of our lack of attention. We need to keep tabs on our budget, on our bank accounts, on our funds, not because we idolize them, not because that's where our trust lies, but because we want to be found faithful stewards of the gifts that have been given to us and because we want to be a blessing to others with our wealth rather than a drain on others because of our own foolishness. Wealth has wings, and we need to keep an eye on it, or else it will fly off into the wild blue yonder. Next, sixth principle the Bible teaches us about money. Be mindful of debt. Be mindful of debt. There is a good chance that you have financial debt. I can safely say that because based on research, Total household debt a couple of years ago was $13.15 trillion. There's a good chance that you have some debt. Since debt is so common in the United States, it's leading to a whole host of financial stresses that build upon marriages. It's essential for us to get God's perspective on debt so that we can best manage our finances. And I won't go into all the details, but... I'll give you a brief summary. God does not explicitly forbid debt. I know that Romans 13.8 says that we shouldn't owe anyone anything, but I believe in the context there, it's speaking about Christians withholding from the state taxes that are due to the state. Sean preached about that a couple years ago, if you want to go back and listen to that. God does not explicitly forbid debt. But even though it's not explicitly forbidden, God does highly warn against debt. He cautions against debt. Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave of the lender. Debt means that our actions in some way will be dictated by some other master. I can't do this. I can't do that even though I wanted to, because I still owe my master some money. Debt has costs that come with it, more than just financial costs. The Atlanta Highway, right over here, is full of payday lenders and car title loan places that offer the promise of freedom if you will just sign on the dotted line. 
But what happens is these people often get enslaved in a system of unjust compounding interest which buries them in a financial hole they will never be able to escape. Even though God does not forbid debt, you still want to be cautious, very cautious when you take on debt. It's a good idea to seek the advice of godly counsel to speak into your situation. Be humble to ask for help if you are stuck in crippling debt. If you're in debt, prayerfully consider steps that you can take to get out of debt, to be free of this master, especially when they have high interest. That's enough for that. The Bible is clear that we should be very mindful of debt. Seventh, seventh principle. Greed brings death, but contentment brings life. Greed brings death, but contentment brings life. I spoke earlier about how greed brings death. It brought death to Adam. It brings death into our lives. But we're called to live a life of contentment rather than greed-driven love of money. As Scott read earlier, Hebrews 13.5, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Contentment is the biblical virtue of being satisfied with what God has given to you. There's a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs who wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you haven't read it, and you promise me you will read it, I'll give you a copy tonight. I'll buy you a copy if you promise to read it. It's that good. Jeremiah Burroughs, talking about contentment, he says that a heart that has no grace and is not instructed in this mystery of contentment knows of no way to get contentment but to have his possessions raised up to his desires. But the Christian has another way to contentment. That is, he can bring his desires down to his possessions and thereby attain contentment. So what does this mean? It means we don't have to base our contentment on something as shifting and conditional as our desires. We adjust our desires to fit what we have been given. And we root our contentment in the steadfast love of God. And in this way, we will always be satisfied, always fulfilled and content. And if you're satisfied with what God gives you, then you can hold it with an open hand. You don't have to clench it and keep it close to your body. You won't be so invested that in what you have that you're afraid to let it go. You won't feel the need to hoard your money because you know it comes from God and you trust him to give you everything you need. If you're content, you can use your money for good rather than letting it use you for evil. And that's the offensive mood, right? The defensive mood is guarding yourself against greed and covetousness. Pay attention to how your, your heart responds to what others have. If something's bigger, better, nicer than what you have, do you instinctively want that? Are you drawn towards that? Do you find yourself collecting possessions more out of pride than out of necessity? Be careful about what you let influence your heart. You see, in many countries, advertising is an ever-present, multi-billion dollar industry built on creating in you a desire you didn't have for something you don't really need. But we must read and 
watch and listen carefully. We should notice what tugs at our heart and be honest with ourselves about why it does. We have to fight for contentment, meditating upon what God has given to us, about what we really deserve and what Christ has given or what he has done to earn it for us. Then when we've truly dug deep in the well of Christ's grace, we'll begin to see contentment grow. It won't happen overnight. It's a battle. But contentment grows best in the garden of gratitude, being watered daily by prayers of thankfulness. Fight for contentment, for with it comes life. Eight, an eighth principle, the last principle. A wise person will be generous with his wealth. A wise person will be generous with his wealth. What does God want us to do with our money beyond providing for our basic needs? The answer is simple, to serve others and through that glorify him. Honor the Lord with your wealth, we read. Proverbs 3, 9. How do we do this? We embrace a mindset of generosity. Right? How do we be generous to others? If we've given the Lord the first fruits due to him, how can we then love our neighbor as ourselves? The Bible over and over commends generosity. Psalm 37, 21. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One person gives freely, and yet he gains even more. Another withholds unduly and comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. It reminds me of John Bunyan's old children's rhyme. It was a man people thought was mad, because the more he gave, the more he had. Paul speaks to this reality when he writes in 2 Corinthians 9, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. A wise person is generous and will reap the fruit of that generosity. New Testament Christians are directly instructed to be generous. Paul gives Timothy a clear message to pass on to other believers. 1 Timothy 6, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, a biblical attitude towards money is not how much can I get, but how much can I give? The difference in these two thought processes is a short-term gain versus a long-term investment. Jesus reminds us that no wealth here will last. Stocks will crash, money is stolen, houses will burn down, clothes will wear out. But when you use your money to serve others and glorify God, you are investing in eternal treasure. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's not that we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't seek riches at all. Christians are allowed to engage in a lifestyle that includes material possessions. However, our desire to have should never surpass our desire to give. Pursuit of material goods must 
take a permanent back seat to generosity. We are able to give freely because we can rest in the knowledge that God will provide for us, perhaps even through the generosity of others. But you might ask, what if I see that I'm not really generous? I don't hold loosely to my possessions. In fact, I like my time, my money, my stuff. I don't like it when I have to give them up. Well, the starting point is not merely for you to try harder, right? The starting point is not merely for you to get your budget all in a row, and then your problems will go away. Guilt and fear are terrible motivators in the long run. No, our starting point, if we want to grow in generosity, is we need to think about Jesus. We need to think about him. We need to hear about how Jesus was generous. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christ was moved by love to give up riches in order to save those who had tried to rob him. You thought about it that way? We robbed Christ of the worship that was due to him. We are thieves. Just like Adam had robbed God the fruit that did not belong to him. We were dead in our sin of greed and covetous theft. But Christ willingly gave up his riches and put on rags. And he lived a life of poverty so that we might, through his poverty, become rich. And our riches are principally spiritual riches. We receive the gold and silver of forgiveness and acceptance to God. We put on the royal robes of Christ's righteousness and we take off our rags of self-justification. We wash our soiled souls in the fountain of his forgiveness and we put on the crown of glory that he gives to those that come to him. And when we see the glorious and multifaceted ways that Christ has been generous to us, we, when we consider the depths to which he stooped and the heights to which he has taken us, then our hearts will glow with gratitude and will overflow with love to others, which may look like generosity. If Christ can give up so much for such a lowly person as me, then I can give up a few of my earthly possessions for someone else in need. I don't need to cling to my stuff since Christ has met my every satisfaction and desire. I'm free to be generous rather than greedy and covetous. And that means that in Christ, I'm actually able to be wise with my money rather than a fool. So to begin to wrap up this whole message, we can say that the Bible teaches us to treat money like a gift, not a God. Remember that God owns everything and expects you to make good use of the property that he gives you for a short time. Thank God for being a loving and generous father who provides for his children. And find comfort and reassurance in Jesus' words. Jesus says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Look at the flowers of the field. They neither labor nor spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was arrayed like one of these. 
If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For pagans run after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In sum, the Bible gives us a simple message. Do not let your life be ruled by money. Seek God, first and foremost, even in your financial dealings, and everything else will fall in place. I'm going to close by reading an old hymn that explains what God really wants from us. The wise may bring their learning, the rich may bring their wealth, and some may bring their greatness, some bring strength and health. We too would bring our treasures to offer to the king, but we have no wealth or learning. What shall we children bring? We'll bring him hearts that love him, we'll bring him thankful praise, and young souls meekly striving to walk in holy ways. And these shall be the treasures we offer to the king. And these are gifts that even the poorest child may bring. We'll bring the little duties we have to do each day. We'll try our best to please him at home, at school, at play. And better are these treasures to offer to the king than richest gifts without them, because these a child may bring. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would expose the remaining idols in our heart. Whatever it is that's causing us to covet, that we're placing our desires, our hopes, our trusts in, any bit of creation, Lord, pry it from our fingers. Help us to fix our gaze, our hope, our trust, our desires in you and you alone. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close tonight by singing hymn 534, Take My Life and Let It Be. 534, Take My Life and Let It Be. Can you my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love at the impulse of thy love take my and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Always only for my King. Take my
this benediction from our Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. You are dismissed.